folk artists, you know, they don't often shout. Sometimes it's a whisper. But if you listen, if you give them the opportunity, not only to perform, but to have their say, whatever it may be, that can be a very important thing. That is Barry Burgey. Until recently, Barry led the Folk and Traditional Arts Division here at the National Endowment for the Arts. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the NEA. I'm Josephine Reed. This November, Barry Burgey, who had been a vital part of the agency for over 29 years, stepped down as Director of Folk and Traditional Arts. Barry served in that position since 2000, following 15 years as an NEA specialist in that field. Barry also managed the National Heritage Fellowship, which is the nation's highest honor for folk and traditional artists. And he was an ongoing consultant to the State Department on international cultural policy. Over the course of his career, Barry has been a field worker, festival organizer, radio producer, curator, and arts administrator. His resume is long and deep but it pales in comparison to how much he is beloved and admired, both here at the agency and around the country, for the quiet, thoughtful passion he brings to his work. He understands firsthand the value and significance of a people's cultural expression that often speaks to the deep connection between community and culture. After all, while Barry is a leader in the field of folk and traditional arts, and now lives in Washington, D.C., his cultural roots have always remained planted in the soil of his native Missouri. I want you to tell me about New Haven, Missouri, or Missouri. Missouri, well, mm-hmm. let me tell you about Iowa first. I was actually born in Iowa, southeastern Iowa, in a little town called Primrose. It had 80 people in it, so uh, it was very small. My dad was a minister. He had two churches. And so I would sit through sermons uh, twice uh, a Sunday, and I developed the skill of looking very interested in what he was saying when my mind could have been wandering many places. But I guess it prepared me for meetings in the government. And I went to one-room schoolhouse there. And when we moved to New Haven, Missouri, which I was going into the fourth grade, I thought I was moving to the big city because New Haven had about 1,200 people. And it even had a movie theater. So I was very happy to be going to this very urbane place in Missouri, not realizing that in some people's minds that wouldn't be the big city by any means. But I can remember going into school, we had a weekly reader quiz, and they asked about my favorite movie star. And I had only seen maybe two or three movies in my life at that point, and so I didn't know many movie stars. So um, my response to my favorite movie star was Francis the Talking Mule. And most of the kids in my class thought that was very funny. So I realized at that point I had a lot to learn. How was it growing up there? It was a great place. It wasn't all that far from St. Louis in many ways, but, you know, about 65 miles. So we were close enough that you could kind of get into the city if you wanted to, but it was very rural and mainly farmers, people who lived or worked on the river in some way. So to me, that was a formative experience in my life, growing up in that town. What I realized as I went on to uh, college and so forth is that I, I grew up in a sort of a monocultural setting for the most part, and wherever I went, I experienced new people with new backgrounds, with new identities, with new ways of behaving, and that really fascinated me. You know, until you go away from where you are, you don't realize that 
things are different other places. And you just take for granted lots of things, whether it be quilting or people who might fiddle or people who might tell good stories or whatever it may be, or people who uh, raise almost all the food they eat. And so I, I just took all that for granted until I started experiencing people who had a totally different experience in life. I think that sort of set me off in terms of being curious about community, about how you identify with the community and, and culture, how you behave. Now, where did you go to college? Well, I went to the University of Missouri, so that's when I first experienced the people who were a, a lot different than I was in terms of their the way they grew up. It was during the baby boom, so when I started there, there were about 12,000 people in the, in the college, and when I graduated, there were 25,000 at the State wow. University. And then I went on to graduate school at Washington University in St. Louis. What did you major in? Uh, American Lit. I didn't know you could study folklore. And I was interested in American culture and in, in writing. And one of the experiences I had is I had a, a great high school English teacher. And when I graduated from high school, he gave me a copy of Alan Lomax's The Folk Songs of North America. Because he, he came from the Ozarks. So he talked a lot about folklore, about folk belief, and, and other things. So he sensed I had an interest in it. So when I graduated from high school, he gave me this collection. Little did I realize that m many years later I would come to Washington to work for Alan Lomax's sister, Bess Lomax Haas. That's amazing. And yeah. did, that book, was that a pivotal gift for you, even at the time? It was. It was, because uh, I, I, I devoured the, the material. I was never a musician myself, but I was very interested in, in folk song. And I was growing up at a time when the, the folk boom was occurring, of course, at the same time. So, uh, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Joan Baez, and Bob Dylan were all part of that experience as well. Then I realized that connected to much more traditional community-based music. And so my avenue in uh, was mainly through the music, I would say, first. Did going away to college let you look at the art that was being created in your own community and maybe be able to recognize it as an art as opposed to that's something that Aunt B does, that's her quilting? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think to a certain extent, probably... It was probably the displacement from community that had the strongest effect on me first. And it, it was really probably a little later, maybe in graduate school, that I began to sense that uh, there was all this other significant stuff happening uh, around us. And we would go out and attend uh, fiddler's conventions and uh, bluegrass gatherings and so forth. And it really started to take an interest in it. And we realized at the time, even with the folk boom, there was a lot of attention paid to Appalachian music and the blues. Not so much what was occurring around us in the Ozarks and in Missouri, in central Missouri. And we realized no recordings were being made. There was no documentation. And I always say that, uh, partially at least, I think my uh, efforts in folk and traditional arts came from that sort of parochial point of view initially, there's great stuff here and nobody or very few people know about it. about documenting it. How could you afford to do it? Were you working? How did it all come together for you? 
Well, actually NEA plays a, an important role in that. We got together uh, as an organization. It was called Missouri Friends of the Folk Arts. And how did you become a part of that organization? I had a couple of friends you just put started it together. It. Yeah, uh -huh. we started. <laughs> <laughs> what happened is there was a blues musician named Johnny Shines who was traveling through St. Louis. He was coming from Chicago, going back to his home in Alabama, and his car <laughs> broke down in St. Louis. So I had some friends who were involved, interested in the blues, and St. Louis was quite a blues center. And they decided that they wanted to do a benefit for him to pay to have his car fixed. And so we put on a little concert at Washington University, and we were able to broadcast you know, that we were going to do this concert, just on the spur of the moment. And lo and behold, we had all these people show up. In fact, so many people showed up that we did two back-to-back -back concerts in one night and raised enough money for him to fix his car. And this gave us the idea that, well, maybe you know, there's an audience for this kind of thing and an interest in it. And that was one of the things that led us to decide to form a, a not-for-profit organization. And then, because I had a lot of friends who were into traditional old-time music, string band music mainly, we decided, well, there are all these fiddlers out here and uh, banjo players and singers that should be recorded. And we knew about the fact that a lot of this kind of documentation had been done uh, in Appalachia. And we knew there was a person named Alan Jabour who had made a record of West Virginia fiddle music, a, a great album. So we decided, well, he works at the National Endowment for the Arts. And maybe we could see if we could get some funding to do the same sort of things. And he was very encouraging to submit an application for a grant. Now, we didn't know enough to put in money for our time or anything else. We just wanted some a tape recorder, a microphone, some tape, and enough money to press a record. And he was uh, encouraging, and we sent in an application, and we got $4,500 to make a recording. Later, the State Arts Agency began to take an interest, now that we'd gotten this recognition from the NEA, and they put enough money in to match that grant, because we had no money, essentially, mm -hmm. so we could place a copy of that album in every school and library in Missouri, and that was our, our match for it. The album was called Am Old Play Tough, Traditional Music of the Ozark Region. So we spent about a year traveling around and making field recordings and then uh, put that album together. And that was 1975. So that really sort of started us on, on this course, I guess, in some way. This was really a time that folk and traditional arts was really coming into its own. Yeah. Did you meet other folklorists from other parts of the country? Yeah. And I didn't realize it at the time, at least early on, that you could actually go and study this stuff somewhere. So I'm, I'm pretty much self-educated on that, on that front. But I did start interacting with other folklorists who had the benefit of a, a, an academic degree in it and, and tried to do as much reading as I could. And that was eye-opening. But I still, until I came out to here, which would, would have been 1985, was pretty much focused on Missouri culture, whether it be you know blue, the blues music of St. Louis uh, and the St. Louis area, or the traditional old-time music, or the crafts in the area. I had a funny experience once, which was we did a festival for eight years on the grounds of the Arch, and it was, a, it was patterned after the Smithsonian Folklife Festival and, and the National Folk Festival music crafts, and somebody was describing this person 
to me. He said, there's a perfect person for your festival. He makes wooden toys and he travels around to all these crafts fairs. And uh, they were describing my father. It was kind of funny for me to think about that. But uh, when he retired from the ministry, he made wooden toys. And he would travel around craft fairs because he liked to interact with people. And he liked the joy of seeing young kids play with the toys. So I never thought of him for a minute as being someone who I might present at a festival. You know, but that's the kind of funny thing that happens sometimes to you. (laughs) That, to me, seems so typical of what folk art is. Yeah. Well, Joe Wilson is one of the legends of folk and traditional arts. I know you and he go back a long way. When did you first meet him? Wow. It would have been in the uh, the early 70s, early to mid-70s. Joe was the director of the National Council for the Traditional Arts at the time, and they did the National Folk Festival. So Joe came out to have a conversation with us about perhaps hosting the National Folk Festival in St. Louis. Well, that never happened. But Joe is one of these people who inspires lots of other activity. And he was interested in traditional music. He learned about some of the folks we were recording out here, some of our our work. He encouraged us to start a a festival, which we did. After that, we um, made a connection with the National Park Service at the Arch and moved the festival there. We called it the Frontier Folklife Festival. And we did that for seven years, I guess, on the grounds of the Arch. And it became a, a pretty big festival. And that's how we were able to give artists from Missouri uh, a stage, a voice. Bess used to say, you know, you give people a platform and you get let them express themselves. Folk artists, you know, they don't often shout. Sometimes it's a whisper. But if you listen, if you give them the opportunity, not only to perform, but to have their say, whatever it may be, that can be a very important thing. And that's, with the festival, that's what we try to do. When you came here, here, the National yeah. Endowment for the Arts, in 1985, mm-hmm. Bess Lomax Hawes was here. Right. And Dan Sheehy was here. Right, right. Tell me about Bess and Bess's influence, not just on folk and traditional arts at the NEA, but yeah. really nationally. Mm-hmm. Bess was such a such an important figure. I think one of the reasons she was such a, a good strategist, but she had been in Washington. You know, uh, her father and her brother were both involved with the Archive of Folk Song at the Library of Congress way back. She also was here as a, she would have been a, a teenager or just entering college during the era of the WPA and all the federal government's investment in the arts and documentation, Federal Writers Project, all those things were happening. And one of the things that she learned from that, I think, is that these are good programs, but they also can disappear almost overnight because she saw that happen. She, mm-hmm. she experienced that where almost overnight, most of those programs went away. So when she came to uh, Washington, she was hired by Nancy Hanks to at the time, there wasn't even a folk arts program as a program, a distinct program at NEA. There were just special projects, basically. She uh, saw the need to create something with some permanence. And so she went about, in a very deliberate way, establishing a network of, of folk art specialists around the country because uh, she realized that we're way under-institutionalized in folk arts. There's a need for a link somewhere. And she also saw, I think, the danger 
of this kind of romantic notion about folk arts. That is, that it's archaic, it's exotic, it's, you know, there are lots of things, you know, you can play the nostalgia card, but it's, it's more than that. Folk arts is more deeper than that, and it's community-based. And so she saw the need for having people who really had expertise and training in folklore or cultural anthropology or ethnomusicology to have these positions around the state that could conduct documentation, field work, could execute public programming of some sort, exhibits, films, festivals, whatever it may be. So she really started early on to link with state arts agencies or not-for-profits in states that could provide a sort of statewide service. And then she also saw the need for several other things. One is apprenticeship programs where there were traditions, as there are languages, that are threatened if not disappearing in some cases, and that this idea of the one-on-one apprenticeship was an important concept for folk arts. So that was a very important thing. And then later, in, in 1982, she used the National Living Treasures concept that was really started in, in Japan to propose a National Heritage Fellowship Program where we would recognize individual artists. And that had an, many important elements. It had a public element where we would do a public program And it had a personal element, of course, because we were able to both honor and and give money to masters of of tradition. And it had a political element, which was to raise awareness politically in Washington, D.C., about the importance of these artists and these art forms. And it also made a statement as far as the federal government's involvement in folk and traditional arts. She saw a, a sort of deeper connection that needed to be made with community. And that's why she set about, I think, establishing a program that would address those needs. And that's had an important impact ever since. You're only the third director Mm -hmm. of folk and traditional arts here at the endowment. Yeah. Now, why the decision to come to Washington? Well, it was a tough decision for me because I'd always grown up in the Midwest. I hadn't spent any time east of the Mississippi. I still pretty much had small town roots in many ways. You know, I also saw it as a great opportunity to work with Bess, who was, of course, someone who was known to me at the time, more by reputation than a, a personal relationship. And the, the wonderful thing for me was the opportunity to kind of expand my horizon, to think about all this other stuff that was going on around the country. And so it was a learning experience for me, definitely. And, and you know, uh, Bess and Dan were great mentors in that. And I have to say... Through the years, the panel meetings, of course, were a significant factor. Having all these people come to Washington and talk and discuss the projects around the country and give their expertise, react to the sample materials we're having, that was a graduate education ongoing. It still occurs. It really was the way you learn. And it was that kind of conversation around the table that made a huge difference in my life and in my learning. I'm trying to think of a good way to put this, but there was a challenge for you all to make sure folk arts got its respect. Right, right. Can you talk about that challenge? Yeah, that it is difficult. And somebody, I read an article once where they referred to cultural voyeurism or cultural vampirism. And, uh, you know, cultural voyeurism, I guess, would be the, the kind of idea that this stuff is really 
exotic, it's different. So you, you take an interest in it because it's weird, so to speak. And that's not a good reason to take an interest in my, in my view. Or there's the cultural vampirism, and that's a, something where you folks get interested in it and then use it in some way, but don't respect it or credit it, but kind of pull from it and, and use it for whatever reason. And so I think you kind of constantly battle those two things. I think the Heritage Fellowships had a lot to do with the respect that Fogarts deserve because it, it gave a significant platform for the artists. It showed it in a respectful manner. I mean, uh, Fogarts has written about text, context, and texture. Those are three elements of expression sometimes. You know, there's text, there's the, whatever it is, the object or the, the word, whatever it could be, and the context in which it occurs, and then the texture, the kind of aesthetic things, you know, that goes beyond necessity. The decoration on a quilt or a basket that, you know, isn't necessary for it to function, but it's an important element of it. And when you think about those various dimensions, then you kind of figure out a respectful way to present it. Well, folk art really is an art of the people. It's an authentic expression of the people. Unfortunately, it's not really a moneymaker, and there's often a way of devaluing things that don't make money. Yeah, and it's very deep. I'm reminded of a heritage fellow once, a basket maker. Uh, Somebody said to her, that's such a nice hobby you have. And she said, that's not a hobby, that's my life. And that's the kind of depth of connection that, you know, you like to bring out because uh, it is more than that. It is more than just a pastime to many people. And just because it isn't necessarily commercially viable, that doesn't mean it isn't important. to me that a challenge for a folklorist in the United States is that we are a culture of many peoples Mm -hmm. so that everybody who's come here has left a footprint and strands of their culture that they took with them from wherever they came. So of course folk art is always vivid and, and evolving but I would think in America even more so because of the way this country came together and continues to come together. Mm-hmm. It's both the challenge and the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, the, it's, a, it's constantly changing. I was just at a meeting talking with somebody from Nebraska who was telling me about uh, the Sudanese population now in, in Nebraska, recent immigrants who've come, different tribal groups from, from Sudan also. So it's a question of their language differences or cultural differences, but it's, it's constantly changing. So. You know, that's one of the great things about, uh, some people say, well, hasn't all the documentation been done? Hasn't all, don't we know everything about ourselves? No, not quite yet. And we never will. I know a friend of mine is a Nigerian-American and was talking to me about being raised in Texas. And I said, God, I just can't imagine being Nigerian in Texas. He said, no, there's a big Nigerian population in Texas. He said, when I was in Utah, that was very different. Uh, uh. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's constantly changing. I think that's great because that's one of the challenges, just meeting the community on its own terms, finding out what their needs and interests might be. But one thing you can bet on is that almost every community has some form of expressive life that they feel 
is important to them. It could be song, it could be lullabies they sing to their children, it could be rituals around birth or death or marriage, it can be what people wear. So all those things are, are important. You've been an ongoing consultant to the State Department about international cultural issues. Tell me a little about your international work. Well, there, there is a lot of interest internationally now in, in what is called uh, intangible cultural heritage, which is a, just another name for folklore, pretty much. And, you know, many countries have a separate system. They have a, an arts ministry, and then they might have a, a ministry of cultural heritage. So they think of those things differently. In the U.S., that's not the case. Number one, we don't have a cultural ministry. We uh, sometimes say our arts policy is to not have a policy, which is sort of the way it is. And that, you know, there are good things about that. It's not a top-down concept. But many other countries invest a lot of money in, in cultural heritage, and not just physical cultural heritage, but the intangible. And this has become quite a, a strong movement now around the country. There, there is a convention at UNESCO, which is like a treaty on intangible cultural heritage, safeguarding intangible cultural heritage. 150 countries have ratified the treaty. We haven't at this point, but you know, we were involved with the drafting of it, and maybe someday we will. China's investing millions of dollars now in establishing intangible cultural heritage museums and centers in every province in China and doing lots and lots of field work. So it's something that's happening internationally. It's very exciting, I think. I would imagine globalization is kind of a two-edged sword when it comes to folk and traditional arts, because on one hand, it's a threat, but on the other hand, it can easily make people appreciate it more as everything right. else becomes more homogenized. Right. Yeah, and sometimes globalization can just be uh, used as a term for, for the U.S., the dominant you know, movies and TV and kind of mass culture, and globalization means kind of a, a graying out, as, as Alan Lomax put it, of cultural distinctness. But, you know, there are good aspects also about communicating across cultures and providing opportunities with new media and so forth to share that work. It is a, a two-sided coin or a two-edged sword, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Barry, 29 years, 29 years? <laughs> and a half. And a half. <laughs> you had to have thought about your legacy, and I'm not going to ask you <laughs> what it is because that seems unfair to me, but I am going to ask you what you hope it is. <laughs> well, you know, I think about, there were uh, some heritage fellows again. They were from Alaska. They worked in carving masks. It was a husband-wife team, and she sewed seal skins and, and made things. And I can remember when they were talking about what they did. They were really struggling to say what it was they did. And the best they could come up with, which I think is a pretty good thing, is they said, we try to do good work. And that's about as much as you can expect. <laughs> you try. And so I guess that's what I would hope. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, maybe a little of it was good. Oh, come <laughs> So much of it. <laughs> Barry, thank you so much for well, more than you will know. <laughs> well, it's been, it's been great fun. That was Barry Burgey. He just retired as the director of Folk and Traditional Arts here at the National Endowment for the Arts. 
We all look forward to his next chapter. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Thank you.